So we're coming towards the end of this series and this study on the Holy Spirit. So we've been using Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Holy Spirit, and we've adapted it for the Sunday school class here. And it's been really helpful and insightful, um, sort of opening up some new categories of thinking, I know for me personally, and hopefully it's been helpful for, for you as well. So last week we talked about the gifts of ministry, uh, the gifts that the uh, Spirit gives to the church for the work of ministry. We looked at Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and some other passages as we thought through that. This week we'll continue considering the gifts for ministry that Christ gives to the church. Um, now, we, we talked a bit about, uh, well, a, a lot about sign gifts and miraculous gifts and those gifts which um, uh, operate more ordinarily in the church, if I could put it that way. And this morning's class will continue that discussion on tongues and prophecy. And we'll talk about uh, continuation, uh, whether these uh, certain miraculous gifts and sign gifts continue, continuation, or whether they were for a specific time and context, um, whether they have ceased, cessation, okay? So we'll look at those two, two categories. First, uh, tongues. Now, Ferguson notes four specific passages um, in which speaking in tongues is mentioned, and it's mentioned as an effect of the Spirit's coming. All right, so we'll look at four passages where we see speaking in tongues as an effect of the Spirit's coming. So first, we see it on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, 4. Let me have someone read that, that verse for us, nice and loud. Acts 2, 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so this is in the context of the disciples uh, awaiting uh, the Spirit, as Christ promised, uh, the Spirit comes as this rushing wind. Um, they come down from where they are gathered, and they begin speaking in tongues. Okay, we'll talk about that a little more as well. And then Acts 2.11, someone want to read that for us? We'll be in Acts a lot during this class, so just put a bookmark there. <laughs> Acts 2.11. Okay, so this is the continuation of what's recorded here. They speak in tongues, and uh, non-Jews, uh, Gentiles, proselyte, Cretans, Arabians, they all hear them in their own tongues, and they're telling the mighty works of God. They're, they're basically sharing the revelation of God and the gospel. Okay, so they all hear in their own, their own tongue. Okay, so the second place we see uh, speaking in tongues is in the house of Cornelius. <clears throat> Acts 10.46. Acts 10.46. Someone read that for us. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared. Okay. Again, we see tongues um, being spoken and being heard in understood. 
The third place we see this is the disciples at Ephesus who had previously only received the baptism of John, which we talked about a few weeks ago in that, that context. But Matthew 19, verse six, sorry, Acts 19, verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Okay, speaking in tongues and prophesying. We talked about prophesying bit last week we'll talk about it again this week in connection with with tongues but again telling revelation we talked about the significance of word revelation and connection with miracles and signs and wonders which we'll talk about more and then lastly we see this in the context of the church at Corinth and we'll look specifically at 1st Corinthians 12 10 1st Corinthians 12 10 Let me have someone read that for us. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. Okay. Thank you. So we see miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits, um, discernment, um, various kinds of tongues, and the interpretation of tongues. Now, there are a, a couple of questions, or a few questions, many questions could be, surrounding tongues. Yeah, I have one. <laughs> <laughs> let me see if I can answer it and then I'll let you ask. <laughs> um, so, unlike prophecy and miracles, tongues are only found in the New Testament. Now, the tongues at Pentecost seem to be similar to the tongues that we see in the household of, of Cornelius, or at least the, the context of it. But the speaking in 1 Corinthians is a little different than those other two contexts. At Pentecost, when the disciples began to speak in tongues, there's no interpreter needed, which is different from what we see in other places. Um, because in Acts 2.6, it says, each one was hearing them in his own language. So tongues are, are, are spoken and no interpreter is needed, which in other contexts, uh, Paul says that they must be interpreted. But here, they just hear in their own language. And 1 Corinthians says, again, what I just mentioned, Paul says that there is an interpreter. An interpreter is needed in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, I think um, this means that tongues were not simply um, uh, or what, that, that tongues were, were not simply a language of, or, or dialect, but the context determined whether or not interpretation was needed. So let me, let, let me say that again. In one context, they're speaking in tongues, and the, men, they, the people hear, and they, are, they receive the revelation of God, and they respond to it after Peter gives his sermon. In other contexts, Paul says, okay, there, there will be tongues there, but there must be someone there to interpret the tongue. So someone who interprets the revelation for the people. Now, I know when I say revelation, and maybe I'm just speaking to my own church background and context, when I say revelation, all type of things come to mind. Are we talking about revelation that's uh, never been heard or seen or understood before? Some sort of uh, unique thing that someone says? Um, we used to uh, call them uh, parking lot prophets, where they would come up to you in the parking lot and say, 
you're going to be um, rich by the age, uh, by, by the time you're 23, or you're going to be married at this time, or you're going to have this many children. This is not what's being referred to here. Um, when they're interpreting the revelation, they're really just taking the revelation spoken, spoken about the wisdom of God and the gospel and communicating that to the people. Okay, so two different contexts, but the, the, the essence of what's communicated is, is the same. Now, um, you've probably heard, like me, that tongues are not simply a language, but an angelic tongue, um, the language of, of angels. Is that, is that something you've, you've heard before? Is that, is that common? No? Yes? Oh, I, I've heard that, that before. That understanding uh, usually comes from the interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, 1. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 1, and then we'll read that and then talk about this a bit. 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Whoever gets there, just read it nice and loud. <clears throat> Okay, thank you. Now, even in some places in the Apocrypha, um, angelic uh, dialect is, is mentioned. So uh, the Testament of Job, for instance, you see that. And Paul uses language similar to um, tongues of angels in other places in the New Testament to talk about the ridiculous claims of so-called super apostles. So I think when we've looked at when some would look at first Corinthians 13 and see this language that Paul uses the tongues of men and angels, something comes to mind for them. Um, but I want to sort of maybe bring some clarification to that, which I think would be helpful. Paul uses this language of tongues of angels in, in other places. Um, and he's using it more as a, um, um, as a way to say, some are saying that they're super apostles and, what they're doing is extraordinary above what God is revealing to the apostles and prophets, to the church. Um, and he's using it in a way to sort of poke at and say the tongues of men and angels. It's, it's supposed to say, well, this is ridiculous. Um, and to just con continue on that thought, there was a false teaching trying to influence the church that came from a group of false teachers with an over-realized eschatology. And I think this is what Paul is addressing. This led them to believe that the resurrection had already taken place. Therefore, believers were already like the angels in heaven. And so this may give us some clue as to why he talked about, in a sarcastic way, um, tongues of men and angels. He was sort of uh, calling out these false prophets and false, false teachers. The idea that tongues are an angelic language is, is simply not consistent with the use of tongues in the New Testament. Okay, so we'll come back to that a little a little later as well. Okay, before I move on to uh, prophecy, any thoughts, questions there? Did you have a question, still? Yeah. I okay. Think you might have asked that because I've been to other churches. Mm -hmm. It makes no sense to me. I mean, it's sure. just, you know, and I mean, it just it boggles my mind to hear that. 
Yeah, it's because I had no no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. And I think that I, this is my own opinion. Mm -hmm. I think that you have to be careful because people have prophesied over me. Uh, it hasn't come to pass. I, I think a prophecy, unless it comes to pass, I mean, that's all gibberish, mm -hmm. pretty much, to me. Sure. But, um, um, again, I, has, I had people, you know, I see people speaking in tongues, but I think, my own opinion, if it doesn't line up with the Word of God, I mean, it's gibberish. Yeah. Yeah. That's the way I look at it. Yeah. And, and Paul warns against uh, speaking in tongues, even when we see speaking in tongues. I've been in church contexts where I've witnessed this speaking in tongues. And um, one, the, the, there's a warning there. I'll say this. It's even if, so I'll, I'll lay my cards out. <laughs> I am a cessationist. But even when I've seen uh, tongues, it hasn't even been uh, consistent with what Paul says ought to be happening. So he mentions order. He mentions one interpreting those those tongues. So it's it's very rare that you actually see it. And actually, I've, I've never seen it in, in that context. Um, now I'm gonna again later on make a, a case yeah, for no, what I just said. But yeah, yeah. So any other thoughts, questions before we go to prophecy? You'll see in the scripture in, in the New Testament, tongues and prophecy uh, tied together often. And that's for a, a specific purpose. And it's what we've been mentioning in the past few classes that um, prophecy and tongues are both the basis of both are the revelation of God to, to his church. Um, and when you, at least in modern, modern day, when you hear uh, of tongues or you hear about prophecy, uh, it's often, as you said, not, not consistent with what the scripture says it ought to be, what it ought to, to do, what the purpose for it is. And so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit too. Yeah. Okay, let's jump down to prophecy. <clears throat> and I'll come back to tongues a little later. Prophecy. Ferguson notes that in the Old Testament, the prophets were the mouthpiece of God and the instrument of divine revelation. Prophets as the mouthpiece of God and the instruments of divine revelation. Uh, Hebrews 1 1. Let's, let's go there first. God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. Okay. <clears throat> oh, and then I'll just read verse 2 there. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So, in the past, through the prophets, many times and in many ways. And then Acts 2 17 says in the last days it shall be god declares that i will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams the words of the true prophet um, from what we what you just mentioned in, in the old testament were were the true words of god and there was there was a blessing and there was a consequence with speaking on behalf of God. So let me have someone read Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 through 22. I will raise up for them a prophet like you among, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and 
he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, and the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Okay, thank you. So what, what sticks out in Deuteronomy 18 about prophecy? What do you see there? Just some things that come to mind for you. Okay. Sabrina said it's easily verifiable. What else? Kyle? Right. And you need to hear it. Right. right. And then Hebrews 1 2 says, right, and now it's spoken to the Son. Yep. Yeah, yep. just that connection. Yeah, that's what yep. we're going to do. Yep. Anticipating the, the great and final prophet. Yep. Yes, that's that good. revelation that we're still Good. Yep. Good, good. What else? Are the, are the prophets limited to the, the, what has passed, or can we have prophets? Is that a question? That's a question. Yeah. You said, "Are they okay?" I'm going to answer that in a sec. <laughs> because everybody, I, you, you hear it, you know, people yeah. prophesizing, and I'm like, "Really?" Yeah, yeah. I I hope to answer that in the next few minutes. But any other thoughts as we look at this? I was going to say that there's a consequence in fear. Hmm. Yeah. Correct, correct prophecy, right. So there's a, there's a consequence. Um, it wasn't sort of open season for, for prophecy, uh, but they were speaking specific words as God has, had commanded. And if they didn't, like you said, there was a, was a consequence. Anything else stick out in these verses? <clears throat> Yep, so if we follow that to its theological right. logical end, yeah. Yep. His words must be believed. Because yep. if they if they were a lie, then he would be a false prophet and worthy of condemnation, which perished the thought. But yeah, that's good. Now considering Deuteronomy eighteen, <clears throat> Ferguson says here, to prefix one statement with the sacred claim, this is what the sovereign Lord says was to profess to be a vehicle of divine revelation. Now, prophecy in the New Testament has been interpreted a few different ways. Some branches of the church view prophecy as a New Testament equivalent of preaching. So it's viewed as part of the church's ordinary life 
in that sense. Um, Ferguson notes that William Perkins, for instance, wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying, and he wrote it to instruct young students and ministers to teach them the art of expository preaching. So they looked at texts in the New Testament and the Old and done some sort of theological work here and um, identified that prophecy seems to be used in a context alongside the proclamation or the revelation of God. And it's more closely tied to preaching than um, uh, telling someone what's going to happen to them in the future. Okay. Um, other interpretations uh, held by men like Wayne Grudem and, and some others, for instance, see two levels of prophecy in the New Testament. The first level being associated with the apostles as implicit and infallible, and the second level of prophecy, which functions more like divinely given insight. So he would say not infallible, nevertheless given by God. The view we hold is much closer to William Perkins' view. Prophecy in the church today, not so much um, uh, foretelling, uh, but forthtelling. And I've talked, uh, I've talked about the difference between those towards the beginning of this series. Foretelling and forthtelling. Um, one being, this is what's going to happen in the future. Um, the other being, this is the, the proclamation of the revelation of God. Okay? Foretelling and forthtelling. <clears throat> of, um, a, a foretelling that proclaims that which is already to be laid down but, or already rather been laid down by the original apostles and prophets mentioned in Ephesians 2 20 okay so prophecy we view prophecy as proclaiming that which Ephesians 2 20 has said has been laid down as the foundation for the church the teaching of the apostles and the prophets and so our, our proclamation some would say well what what ron is doing on the lord's day he's he's prophesying he's proclaiming the word of god consistent with what's revealed in ephesians okay so there there are various views on that and i would never have time to talk about the various views in this class um but um, just that, that distinction between the two. You do have some branches that would say, well, there is um, God-given revelation that's happening in the church today as, uh, as the person gets some insight, some divine insight from God. They share it with the person for their, for their edification, for their, their building up. Um, others would say that type of um, revelation is no longer necessary because it's been fulfilled by the scriptures. So all that we need is found in the scriptures. So any uh, unique or divine revelation apart from the closed canon is not necessary, okay? And we'll talk about those in a sec as well. Um, okay, let's go to continuation. I wanna make sure I give enough time at the end of the class to be able to answer questions. Continuation. <clears throat> Oh, so what's, what, what is that continuation? What, what did I mention earlier? How would you define that? Short, three words, two words, five words. Continuation. These gifts are still present in the church. Okay. Miraculous sign wonder gifts are still present in the church, yes. Now in the apostolic age, signs and wonders were affirmation and witness to the apostles' authority and the early church. So from healings to prophecy to speaking in tongues, 
even exorcisms and other unusual events took place. Those things aren't only unique today, but they were unique even during the time of the apostles and the early church. So it wasn't common for an apostle uh, or just anyone in the church to walk by a man and their shadow heals the lame man. Um, you see an occasion of that, but that wasn't the norm, not, not even then. <clears throat> they were, that was a unique situation. Now, you don't have to look very far in the archives of Christendom to find strong feelings and convictions about the legitimacy of sign gifts in the modern church. Christian bookstores are filled with books about those who claim divine revelation about future events. One of the first books I read um, that my mother or someone gave to me was um, A Divine Revelation of Hell. I was in, I don't know, like the seventh grade or something. <laughs> this is scary. <laughs> but it, it was one of, and it was, it was fascinating to read what this woman had, had written. Um, have use about that. I, 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 I don't think it was uh, legitimate, but it was, it was fascinating to read. <clears throat> but many stores and many uh, views, many have views about these, these things as legitimate and even necessary for the church today. Christians will tell of experiences um, of even training others on how to speak in tongues and how to receive visions. Now, there are even some, interesting, I discovered this, early church fathers who attribute miraculous works to third century bishops. Um, um, I think it was uh, uh, Basil of, of Caesarea was, was one of them who spoke of a man who, um, who, uh, rose, who, who raised a man from from the dead and did other, other very interesting and miraculous things. But even today, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and Pentecostalism, um, miracle workers are expected. And many would say that they ought to be experienced and, and are necessary for, for the Christian experience. Now, in Ferguson's book, he summarizes four basic considerations for, for continuation. One, <clears throat> so, what he's doing here is he's saying, consider the um, continuation argument. And he says this, what he called brute fact of the contemporary experience. In other words, can so many Christians be wrong or misguided? Um, I think what, there was some survey that uh, 70 to 80% of uh, broad evangelicalism holds that signs and wonders and miraculous works are true and necessary even, even today. So he says, can so many Christians be wrong who have said that they've experienced these things? Two, he says, the New Testament nowhere explicitly states that any of the gifts of the Spirit would be withdrawn. Three, he says, the cessationist view would imply that there are two distinct or distinguishable dispensations in the new age, the apostolic age and the post-apostolic age. But the New Testament only recognizes one age, namely the age inaugurated by the eschatological spirit. Fourthly and lastly, he says, in recognizing that prophecy will eventually cease, Paul indicates that this will take place only when perfection comes. 
1 Corinthians 13, 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Then the imperfect will disappear. And view here is the eschaton. So Ferguson says, uh, implied, therefore, is the view that prophecy and presumably other gifts will continue until the return of Christ. So he, he lays those out as a consideration. Number three, um, the cessationists would hold uh, two distinct uh, dispensations in the new age. And the uh, scriptures only talk about one, one, one age in this, in this, this current age. So that, that distinction, and I'll just re read the whole thing for, for clarity. The cessationist view would imply that there are two distinct and distinguishable dispensations in the new age the apostolic age and the post-apostolic age, but the New Testament only recognizes one, okay? Now, was that you? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> did, you, did it say in the book about what you just quoted about when the perfect comes? Is he, did you say that, is, it, is that Ferguson's interpretation or is that you saying that? No, that's, um, so he brings that, he brings that out as what's commonly um, articulated from the continuationist view, but in the book, um, and I'm, maybe I'll, I'll talk about it a bit. I didn't write it into my notes, but he, he walks through how to properly interpret the perfect and the, the imperfect. Um, and I think it makes a very, very strong case for cessationists, yeah. Or that those gifts don't, don't, don't continue. Like I said, I wish I had <laughs> six weeks to, to, to go through all of this, but cause it, it's a lot, but it's also really, really good um, and we just don't have time unfortunately okay so that was the continuationist uh, now the cessationist a few points on the cessationist view Ferguson points out that in the scriptures themselves extraordinary gifts appear to be limited to a few brief periods in biblical history so not all the time in every place but sometimes in specific places for specific purposes so they serve as uh, confirmations, these signs of confirmation of new revelation, and um, they affirm its, its ambassadors. And it's a means of establishing and defending the kingdom of God in significant ways. That, that's the purpose of sign gifts. So uh, I think the point he's starting to make is that miraculous signs and wonders uh, were not trivial. They were used by God, even in the Old Testament, to mark some epical moments in redemptive history. Now, keep that in mind. They were used to mark epical moments in redemptive history. Something big and new was about to take place within redemptive history, and those times were acquainted with signs and wonders. Okay, so this is the case. <clears throat> limited to those, so um, Ferguson puts it another way, signs were limited to those periods of redemptive history in which a new stage of covenantal revelation was reached and um, the kingdom required special defense. Here's an example. The people of God are about to be destroyed in Egypt under Pharaoh and God miraculously delivers his people and eventually settles them in the promised land. Miracles and wonders plague and riddle Egypt as God displays his power. Through Moses, God even parts a sea and people walk over on dry land. So 
he points out that something epical, that something big is happening within redemptive history, and those times are acquainted by these signs and wonders. So plagues, frogs, thick darkness, right? <clears throat> Another example, Elijah and Elijah during the days of exile at the establishment of their prophetic ministry. In 1 Kings 17.22, um, Elijah raises a widow's dead son. In 2 Kings 4.44, Elisha multiplies loaves. It says in, in that verse, so he said it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Does that sound familiar of another epical event in redemptive history? Interesting. <clears throat> God did other signs and wonders, but they were not normative, not even in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, Obadiah, Malachi, Amos, no record of miraculous wonders done. The Old Testament never gives us the idea that signs like this would be the standard of revelation throughout redemptive history. But they seem to be something which um, inaugurated some new epic within redemptive history. Does that make sense? You, you see what he's saying there? So throughout redemptive history, these miraculous signs and wonders, <clears throat> they're happening at times within redemptive history where God is doing something, he says, epical, but uh, big to display his power and to sort of um, transition or bring out some new aspect of covenantal redemption, right? So delivery from Egypt, prophetic ministry starts. The Lord Jesus and the disciples, right? These are pockets where you see these really miraculous things happening, but they're not ordinary, not even in the history of um, the world, right? Okay, there's a pattern here. Christ and the apostles were confirmed by what the scripture calls signs and wonders. Let's look at Acts 2.22. Turn to Acts 2.22. And whoever gets there, just read it nice and loud for us. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> Men attested by mighty works and wonders and signs. Of Paul and Barnabas, Acts 14, 3 says, So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Is the Lord Jesus, is, is the coming of the Lord Jesus something epical in the church? The revelation that God gives to his church, something, something epical? His point is that, Ferguson's point is his book, in his book is that there, there's a pattern here. Something unique is happening, which with this new revelation um, and the, the new covenant even, something, uh, these wonders are happening to attest to the validity of the revelation of, of the word, right? The son of God has come. Um, he is the, the inauguration of the covenant of grace. Something big is happening where God is attesting to it with signs and wonders that God does through them. It's never about the individual themselves and them being uh, this one who has all this power and authority. 
the scriptures over and over say that they, they acquaint uh, the works and the signs and wonders to God's power to affirm his revelation. Okay. Continuing, he points out here that consistent with the Old Testament pattern, um, something epical was happening and confirming the signs and wonders was revelation. Now, of course, in the life of Jesus, in whom all of redemptive history finds its climax, something epical in redemptive history is happening. Paul's ministry um, and significance, as he was God's ambassador to the Gentiles, was also something epical in the church. By the Holy Spirit, he desired to preach the gospel where Christ was not known or named, mainly the Gentile world. Now, this is significant as God is not uh, formally bringing, or he is now rather formally bringing um, non-Israelites into the covenant community, the people of God. So again, something radical is happening, something epical in that sense, as Paul is going out and proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles who now have are, are beneficiaries of grace in, in the new covenant. And so this thing is acquainted with signs and wonders these things to point to God's revelation. <clears throat> um, okay, so remembering Fergus's point here, which I think is true and right and good, I'll summarize it like this. Miracles were not normative, but normatively acquainted epical periods in redemptive history. Does that make sense? I'll sum it up that way. Miracles are not normative, but normatively acquainted epical events within redemptive history, okay? Just to give us a category for that. Now, a counter argument to this <clears throat> is that while gifts are exercised by the apostles, it wasn't only the apostles that experienced them. Acts 6, 8, it says, as Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, Acts 8, 6, talking about Philip says, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So Stephen doing signs, wonders, Philip doing signs and wonders. They're not capital A apostles. So does that, does that case hold up? <clears throat> Now, granted, Stephen and Philip are not, um, like I said, uppercase apostles, but they do seem to have delegated apostolic authority or authority as related to the apostolic ministry. It's interesting that in Acts 21.8, or Acts 21.8 calls Philip specifically an evangelist <clears throat> when we see that designation in Ephesians. Christ gives these gifts to his church, right, pastors? prophets, evangelists, teachers. It says, on the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was with one of the seven and stayed with him. So through the apostles and others who were not apostles, manifestations of the spirit through miraculous works were done. But as we've taught, they were confirmations of new revelation and the ministry of the spirit through individuals to affirm the message. So through apostles and close counterparts of the apostles. The purpose for which these were given 
in the first place shows us that they were not meant to be permanent. The purpose for which these miraculous gifts were given in the first place shows that they weren't meant to be permanent because the giving of them had a narrow context. Okay. To expect the gifts to cease. This is another point. I'll close out on this point and then we'll we'll talk a little more. Um, In his book, Ferguson makes this point, too. Which is, again, I think very helpful to expect the gifts to cease the moment the last apostles closed um, or the, the last apostles or their close companions died is the equivalent of assuming that the acceptance of the canon of Scripture would be dated to the last hour that the last book of the New Testament was first read. Right. So he's saying to expect such an abrupt stop to signs, wonders and miracles in that sense, is sort of the equivalent of expecting um, scripture or the canon to have been um, calcified the last moment, the last letter written by the apostles was read in a church. Um, It's not that clean cut. It's not that abrupt. Where did I stop at? Sorry. In other words, it's not that stark or abrupt. Church history is not that clean and compartmentalized. Ferguson states, the gradual cessation of the gifts follows that pattern which their inner significance suggests. Now, more has to be said about this, but we don't have time. Um, I'll highlight one last point in Ferguson's book and then we'll close. And then if there are any questions, we'll talk about it. So what he's saying just there is that there was a, a, a gradual, he's making the case for this sort of gradual close to this um, season in the life of the church, this period in the life of the church. Um, it wasn't an abrupt drop off, but more of a gradual sort of weaning out or um, limiting until non-existence because those things acquainted a specific epical period in church history. Okay. All right. I'm just going to read what he has here because I think it's it's helpful. He says, despite disclaimers, this is on page 231 in the book. Um, He says, despite disclaimers, the issue at stake here is the sufficiency of scripture for the directing of the church and the individual. I think that's huge. God's revelation has always been sufficient for each stage of redemptive revelation. The climax of redemption in Christ was accompanied by a correspondingly sufficient revelation of the scriptures so that the principle of scriptural sufficiency, which Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, while rooted in the Old Testament, now includes both testaments. The scriptures are sufficient revelation, always have been, but are sufficient revelation for the church. While the New Testament was being written, the guiding principle or canon of the early church was multiplex, he says. The Old Testament, the apostolic directives, prophecies, and those parts of the New Testament already written. Now that multiplex, those various aspects of revelation, now that multiplex canon or rule of faith and life gives way to a single canon, the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. They now contain everything we need for God to tell us about salvation, we're trusting him perfectly, 
and for obeying him perfectly. And so what he's saying is that if, if, if we're right in this pattern, this, this case that he makes for signs and wonders accompanying epical events, as we now have a completed canon, all that was, was needed has now been summarized in the Bible. So all that we need to understand God's revelation, to know how to be saved, to live lives godly, um, worthy of the gospel, they're in the scriptures now, which is God's divine revelation to us, right? So nothing more is needed. Nothing more is necessary for the church, but the scriptures. It's the rule of faith and life for the individual Christian, for the church as a whole. It tells us about the past. It tells us about the future. It's all that we have and all that we need is found in the scriptures alone. Okay, and I completely agree with, 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 with that case that he makes. Um, the Bible is sufficient, and again, 2 Timothy 3.16 shows us that, which I'll close by reading that, and then any questions that, that come up, we can, we can talk a little more. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17. <clears throat> All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be equipped for every good work.